So I think what I'd like to do for this last uh, hour and a bit is to uh, open up the conversation and talk about uh, questions or themes of Dharma that are pertaining. So one of the questions that came up during the lunch break was an interest to know where I've come from and where I'm going. And um, I'm happy to talk about that. But before I launch, I thought what I'd do is I'd ask if there are any other topics that are of interest and see if I can weave through the various themes of, you know, what is of interest to you right now? What's alive for you in your practice? And how did the day today, in terms of cultivating the joy of awakening, what kind of things arise for you when you're working with this? Are you comfortable sitting when you're sitting? You seem awfully far back. (laughs) Would you like to squiggle chairs up and move forward? I know I'm terrifying, but I realize. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, the um, the open sky meditation. Yeah. Um, it's really curious to me to explore that a little bit because, you know, according to the teachings of the Buddha, consciousness arises with each sense door. Uh, we have a sense door and, uh, and some sense object and the knowing of it. And so in the big sky meditation, there's always for me an interest in um, when there seems to be no sense object, no sound, no whatever, what am I sensing that I'm conscious of it? Um, And realizing we have a sense of place, we have a sense of our eyes closed, a sense of being somewhere, um, that there's there's mental activity that may be so liminal that we're conscious, consciousness is rising around. And so I just wondered if you wanted to comment on that, on that, that there isn't continuous awareness, there's awareness arising with each sensation that comes to us. So within the Buddhist teachings, there's two different ways of understanding. One is, is, is that consciousness arises depending on sense contact and it's not continuous. And then the other is, is that there's an overriding sense of awareness that's aware of the awareness of the consciousness as it's arising. So when you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, for example, And it talks about the Four Noble Truths. And within the Four Noble Truths, it talks about the eight, uh, the seven factors of enlightenment. Okay? And with the factor of mindfulness, the phrasing goes, one is aware of mindfulness when it is present, and one is aware of mindfulness when it is not present, and one is able to bring the fulfillment of mindfulness into fruition when it is and, and, and allow it to develop into fruition when it is present, okay? So if you just look at that, you know, mindfulness is present and one is aware of it, and when mindfulness is not present and one is aware of it, what is aware of mindfulness when mindfulness is not present? Okay? It's a very interesting question. What's aware of mindfulness when mindfulness is not present? So what it's speaking to me about is that there's something that's bigger than the, uh, than the actual quality of mindfulness itself, which is able to know when mindfulness is present and absent. What's that? That's not sense contact, because the mindfulness is not there for there to be the consciousness connected to the mindfulness to know that it's there. You follow? Okay. So, you know, and then, and then what happens is the Buddhists go into war so that they'll have the ones that think it's the consciousness that arises dependent on sense contact and then they'll be the ones that think that no, it's not. It actually is an all-pervading sense, a sense of awareness that's pervading all throughout time and space. And then they can fight for 2,500 years. 
and do, I'm sure, I'm sure they have. You know, for me, they're both are true. It's not an either or, both are true. And so it's a question of context and which one you're placing your attention in is depending a little bit on the context. Okay? That's the way I relate to that. Thank you. Yeah. I have a question that, that can follow that. Yes, um, please. Same kind of question. Um, when I was sitting with the idea of, of um, the sky minding sky, one of my efforts to uh, stay in presence with that was to picture it's uh, some kind of picture of that consciousness, that awareness, where it sits, like some some picture of it. And is that is that a, a, a useful way of approaching that or is that another distraction into thought? So I can't answer that question because you have to tell me. You have to tell me what your experience is as a result of doing that. Does that help you relax into a greater sense of awareness or does that actually help focus your attention in some kind of conceptualization of what awareness is? Thank you. That's a good question to ask myself. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's very helpful. So, you know, the way I have learned to practice now over years, I mean, when I first started, I was really... I followed the instructions and I did everything exactly as I was told and I just I was not interested in anything other than Vipassana meditation it was like that's what I did and then after I don't know 15, 20 years 20 years 20 more 20 years more 22 years you know I realized I was still miserable as sin And that more of the same was not what was needed because I was doing it as hard as I possibly could and I actually needed a different approach. And so rather than doing it harder, you know, what I needed to do was to actually soften and come back and look at it from a different perspective. And so there was a major kind of reorientation in my practice. It was a time of taking the bodhisattva vows. It was a time of reconfiguring practice in terms of not getting out of suffering, but learning to rest in presence and move with respect towards what was arising. Huge shifts in my practice, yeah? And with that shift of my motivation, there was also a shift in my experience. And so, you know, even though certainly I've experienced kind of transcendent moments and insights and having clear senses of anatta and anicca and all of that, there was still this kind of abiding sense that I was doing it, You know, I'm here and I'm doing it, right? And when I was living in the bush and these things shifted, it wasn't so much of me being here doing it. It was more a sense of nature, resting in nature. And nature was arising. And it wasn't in here nature and out there nature and human nature and non-human nature. It was just nature. And so the whole thing began to soften around my sense of me as being separate in relationship to nature. It was just nature. And it, was, it, had, it had quite an impact. And that impact also allowed all these kind of layers for me to see that I, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen how that they were, had such an impact on my system. So being miserable as sin was partly to do with the fact that I actually didn't have much 
clarity about some of my internal emotional um, configurations. I didn't see them, I didn't know them, and I didn't see how they were had such a grip on me. So all of this ended up illuminating kind of not only my motivation for practice, but my interior relationship with my emotional world and stuff that had been buried nicely for decades, you know. And as it began to open up and be seen for what it was, then there was more sense of resting in my own skin, you know. And so it was... It was. Um, so, But the reason why I mentioned that was because in this resting in my own skin, in order for me to get there, I moved outside of just working with meditation practice specifically as watch what observes what arises and don't interact with it. And I started doing various different things in order to interact with what it was that I was experiencing. And then after a while I began to understand when it was useful to interact with the objects and when it was useful just to observe the objects and when it was useful just to rest in awareness and not get involved in anything. And so these were um, ex- things that came as a result of practice and, 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 and watching the results. You know. So, you know, after many years, I found that it was actually, there were times when it was really helpful to interact with objects. And, you know, I have got weird twists around anger and sadness. You know, it was one of those things. It wasn't really well, well, I didn't have mechanisms for allowing anger and sadness in my system. So, you know, I have to give special permission in order for me to be able to tolerate feeling them, you know. So that's interacting with the object. You know, it's not just watching it because I don't have the capacity initially to just watch it. The suppressive mechanisms are too strong. They are operating. They've got a hold of me. You know, so I've got developed my whole special needs meditation practices (laughs) around the twists that I have in my own psyche that don't allow me to experience certain things. You know. So, like, what I, because for me it's very early stuff, you know, so I relate to myself as a very young child, you know, so I sing myself angry bear songs or sad bear songs, you know. So you don't take a two-year-old and you tell them to sit by themselves on the cushion and not leave the room until they've sorted it out. You don't relate to children like that, you know. But somehow we have this bizarre idea that because we are in a, a body that's, that's now however many years old, but that's who we are and how we are and how we're supposed to be all the time. You know, but it's a fallacy. You know, that in one instant we are exactly age appropriate and the next instant we are exactly two. <laughs> so wisdom is the ability to recognize that and respond appropriately. It's not to demand a two-year-old to be not two. Yeah. And it's humbling. I mean, it's absolutely humbling to be after 20 years of meditation or 30 years of meditation to all of a sudden turn a corner and catch myself in a two-year-old regress day. But that's, if that's what's happening, then that's what needs to be responded to with the kind of sensitivity and care that you relate to a two-year-old with. Yeah. And then if I do that, it doesn't take weeks. It takes 5, 10, 15 minutes, and then it shifts. I can work with it, and then it sorts. 
But if I require that I am different than the way that I am, (laughs) a long time. It takes a long time. Okay? Yes, we I have, a, I have a question about um, ego and Buddhist psychology or Buddhism in general. I'm just curious, where did the, that term actually emerge? Is it actually, a, does it have historical roots in Buddhism or is it, because Buddhist teachers obviously deal with it, so many Dharma talks, but I'm not able to find it in the suttas per se. So I'm just wondering, how has that terminology been drafted into Buddhism and what's the appropriate way to use it? Okay, I don't know the answer to your question, how it came into Buddhist terminology, but what I can know is, is, is that what Buddhist teachers are talking about when they're talking about ego is identification with a solid sense of self. Okay? That's how it's used. That is categorically different from a psychological sense of ego where you need to have appropriate boundaries and to know who you are and where your edges are and where you do not belong. Because anybody who has worked in the field of psychology and anybody who has not worked in the field of psychology who's been around somebody who does not have good boundaries knows that you have got to have good ego boundaries in order to practice meditation. Now, one of the things that happens living in a monastery is that we get people who are very fragile. And they come either in the middle of a break or just two hairs away from one. And, you know, they do five minutes of meditation and they're in a full-fledged kind of breakdown. Now, what we've learned over a long time of quite a lot of suffering is, is, is that you pull those people out of meditation. You get them to rake leaves and cut potatoes and draw and talk to people. It's like the last thing in the whole world that they need is isolation and introspection. It's not helpful. So, and one of the criteria for the nuns eventually over the years figuring out whether people were suitable candidates for ordaining was whether or not they had enough sense of who they were, a strong enough psychological ego, to withstand the psychic pressure of introspection and silence and solitude. And also, you know, when you're living in a community, I mean, you can only just imagine the kind of things that go on in terms of dynamics and struggles and competition and and having to be able to manage all of that within a kind of fairly clear boundaries of schedule and routine and responsibilities and being in relationship of dependence on each other, you know. So... <clears throat> One, this healthier psychological ego that you have that gives you the resources to do the introspection to see that there isn't a permanent, unchanging um, entity to whom that belongs. That allows the, the Buddhist sense of ego to then be able to be seen for what it is and to dissolve. It's really important not to mix these things up because when you say get rid of the ego then what are you talking about? You know, one part of the ego is essential and the other part of the ego is gives us a lot of suffering. So we want to keep the one that's healthy and dismantle the one that isn't. Yeah. And oftentimes when Dhamma teachers are talking, they don't differentiate. 
So the whole thing is whitewashed. And people just think, well, any time I have a sense of myself, I need to disband that. Well, that's a real good recipe for a mess. (laughs) One of the other things that tends to happen in monasteries is because the teachings are around the idea of non-self, then people who have fractured sense of their psychological self think, well, this is the path. You know, I'm already halfway there. I have hardly any sense of myself already, you know. And so people who have, you know, borderline or personality disorders or, you know, serious issues in terms of fractures in their psychological health come to the monastery even more so than any other religious institution because it's said in the teachings themselves that one is trying to get rid of the sense of self. And it is quite a project to hold people and ground them for them to realize that actually in order to move into a deeper sense of peace, they have got to attend to these fundamental fractures and work with them until they have more ground of being in order to do this other work. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to know that. And that is the way to practice. So there's a little bit that can happen in terms of keeping precepts and giving, living in community or living, uh, having wise friends or uh, making, uh, making offerings, generosity that helps support a person having access to their own goodness. But fundamentally, a person has got to be willing to turn and look at this pain, which is mostly almost unbearable, and be able to start working with that that this stuff can begin to start integrating and enough foundations and ground as a psychological healthy person can begin to develop so that then they can really make good use of the practice. Now, one of the things which I've experienced in my own life and I've seen around me both with meditation teachers and dedicated practitioners is is that they are deeply committed to the practice and then a certain amount of ground is established, a certain amount of insight happens and then all chaos comes as they start uncovering huge traumas that they just had no idea how affected they were by them. And they think, you know, what's going on? But what can happen is is that the clarity that can come from the inside can give us enough cohesiveness of being that enables us to do this work that otherwise we didn't have the resource or the capacity to do. You know. So and this is true for monastics as well as lay people. I mean one story, it's just, I find this story just heartbreaking. It's a true story. But um One man lost his mother when he was seven years old, and at that point he decided something in him just completely shut down, so he stopped feeling. And somehow or another he ended up going to Thailand and uh, getting interested in meditation and ordaining. And Thai people are very emotional. You know, they're just all very emotional. So when they saw this young man who was totally unemotional, their perception or projection was that he was enlightened. Okay, The sisters took one look at this guy and said, something's really seriously wrong here. <laughs> you know, this is, this, is, this is not health and well-being. Something is seriously not okay. okay. So he was phenomenally popular because people thought he's an arhant, he's completely enlightened, he doesn't have any emotions. 
And then uh, he became the abbot of a monastery, and it was a successful monastery, and things flourished for a while. And then, uh, and then one of his disciples was a woman who was dying of the very same kind of cancer that his mother died from. And he went to go visit her in the hospital, and the floodgates opened up, and they didn't stop. And for a variety of reasons, the monks who were in the monastery with him did not understand what was happening for him, and they were embarrassed that the abbot was crying and couldn't stop crying. And it precipitated a crisis, and he ended up leaving and disrobing and has experienced quite a significant depression as a result. Okay, My understanding was that it took... 30 years of monastic life until he had the strength to be able to tolerate the grief of what had happened when he when he cut off from feeling the loss of his, the death of his mother. And what a better place for that to happen than in a community that's interested in waking up, you know? That's what we're supposed to do is touch the stuff that we find so difficult to deal with. So... You know, there's a kind of, I don't know what, humility that comes when we open up to the territory of what we actually have to walk through. And we obviously need to do it with respect. But some of this stuff happens, it's like, you know, whether we feel ready or not, you know, here it comes. And then we just need to find the resources to meet it. But, you know, it's, a, it's an important question you asked, Will about, you know, ego and all the rest of that and how these things interface. But in my own personal experience, the whole world of our internal relationship with our emotions is not an insignificant part of the path. Even though one cannot become enlightened by just working through the blockages that we have to our emotional patterning. The blockages that we have keep us from becoming enlightened. Judeo-Christian culture where we feel that we're basically bad and that, you know, because we've showed up we've made a really kind of profound mistake. There's something about this which is actually useful. I mean, somebody gave the image, he's a teacher, and he said, you know, that if you're drilling for water you know, and you feel that underneath the ground is just this endless cesspit, you're not going to drill very hard. Well, on some level, it's like we think that there's this thin crust of goodness underneath this infinite bad, and that the more we dig, the more bad there will be, you know. 
And so this is actually not in accordance with the Buddha's understanding of the way the mind is. You know, the mind's nature is essentially pure. It's not defiled. The defilements are obscurations that come as a result of conditions, but it's not its inherent nature. So, you know, for, for a culture such as ours that has basic badness as its kind of core belief system, you know, understanding Buddha nature is a, is a really a useful antidote to recognize that this is a conditioning that we have. It's actually not necessarily, it's not the reality. Yeah. But what happens with language is, is that it gets into, you know, it ends up being trivialized. You know, so you talk about something which is very profound and then you use it too frequently and it's like, so what does it mean? You know, we were on our way to the, to the Qigong and a fellow stopped me. Excuse me, madam, he said. I want to know if Buddhists believe if God exists or don't exist. <laughs> that was his question. And I could tell that if I started in with this, this was going to be more than the two minutes it was going to take me to get across the street to start the Qigong. So I said to him, I said, you know, that's a really important question. But I don't have time to go into it right now because I'm just going to be doing something with a group across the street. He said, yes or no. It's a lot easier to answer yes or no. (laughs) Faster to answer yes or no. Yes or no. Does the Buddhist believe God exists or doesn't exist? (laughs) You know, so it's like, all right, so what happens is people get solidified around certain concepts and then polarized in terms of who believes and who doesn't believe, and then the war begins. I wasn't going there, you know. So, And, you know, what does God mean? So it's like, you know, you can take it on a very superficial level on one sense and say, well, Buddhism is a non-theistic religion and we don't believe in God. But what do you mean by God? I mean, if God is a man with a beard who stands with a cane up in the, in the heaven, then probably, yes, it's true. We don't believe in God. You know, but if God is the, uh, the ever-present conscious awareness that, pr- that exists in all things, then there's more ground for negotiation. <laughs> so, you know, language is... You know, obviously it's important because it's one of the things that we communicate, but it also trips us up an awful lot. So it's important to be careful how we use it. Yes, please. You know, speaking of language, that that brings me to my question, which you had started uh, with your first talk about joy as being the underlayment of awakening. And... We have happy and we have joy. And so I was interested to expound on that a little more. Well, um, again, we're talking about language and definitions and all the rest of that, and that depends on what you do with them. For me, happiness is a kind of um, pleasure that comes with sense, with, with gratification. Yeah, but you know this talk or the different kinds of joy is also something that you can say is the different kinds of happiness joy has a more sustaining kind of energy to it it's not so um, I 
Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, my, lang- my mind's not coming up with enough other words to make this thing make sense. So I, 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 because there's, there's a joy as well as a happiness that comes from sense contact. There's a joy and a happiness that comes from, you know, understanding how we can bring attention to the, the divine abodes. And there's a, a kind of a joy and a happiness that comes from transcendent understanding and liberation. So both of them apply. Because, you know, um, maybe lost in translation, in, in, the, in the Pali, there, there's a, a greater sense of difference because when you read a simplistic lay versions of, of Buddhism and it'll talk about that we should be happy, that pain and suffering are not something that but they use the word happy. I've never seen it with, say, we, we can be joyful. So that, that's why when you said that, I thought, hey, now that's an interesting thing. Because can you be joyful without being happy? But then those are English words, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I think most of these things we need to kind of sort out in our own experience and see, you know, whether, whether, whether this is actually true, does this bear fruit, you know? I certainly know that you can be, you don't have to suffer and there can be a, quite a lot of um, unpleasant feeling there. But the mind is actually joyful, it's bright. Even with physical pain or certain kinds of mental pain, if you're not absorbed into it or attached to it or identified with it, there still can be a brightness, a lightness and an ease. Yes, please. I was wondering if you could expand on allowing yourself to feel your emotions, because it's something I struggle with in my practice, especially, like, for me, anger is something that I've never really let myself feel. So when it does come up, I don't really know how to react to it, and it makes everything a lot more confusing. So all I can do is share my own personal stories around this, you know. So I have special needs around anger, you know. So when I was just discovering that, I had to give myself special permission just to tolerate allowing it into my experience. So some nightmares had happened. I don't even need to go into the details. But I was furious, absolutely furious. And I was on a three-month retreat, and I was in a rage. And I thought, you know, I'm just such, it's so agitating. I need to do something. So I was in Switzerland, and I was in the mountains, and it was really cold. It was like 20 degrees below zero or something. I was freezing out. And I got up at midnight, and I thought, I've had enough. I've got to go out and do something. So I took my candles and my incense, and I went out to a tree, and I made a sacred little corner, and I said, please, may this be for the benefit of all beings. I mean, I was terrified, you know. May this be for the benefit of all beings. And I put my candles and my incense to make my little sacred circle, and I took some rocks, and I threw them, and I said some naughty words, you know. It's like... <laughs> But in myself, I was shaking because there was something about allowing anger to come in and verbalize and express and release that was terrifying to me. And so I I needed to go through that level of creating a sacred space to tolerate being able to do that. And then eventually it became easier to allow it in and to release it. And obviously, you know, for me, it's important that I'm releasing or discharging or cathartic in a way where no one's being harmed. You know, so that was obviously a very clear part of the package, yeah. 
And then, and then eventually what I began to be able to do was to allow the feelings to arise into awareness, feel it in my body and get a sense of what this stuff feels like, okay? And then from there, make decisions about what I wanted to do, okay? So learning how to allow it into awareness and then not just dump is one level. And then learning it, how to allow it into awareness and then allow it to cool off enough so that one can then say, well, what's the content in this that is making me so angry? And is it actually useful to negotiate with whoever or whatever situation has been the trigger? Because that also was part of the reason why I was so frightened, that doing that bit was somehow not okay. Yeah. So as I learned how to navigate the energy more as an internal experience, then I also got more skilled in being able to uh, express in ways that were responsible. Okay, so that's one whole mechanism. That sense where we're not allowed to allow it into awareness. The other kind of mechanism with anger is the one that where the second that it arises, it just dumps. So there's no ability to discern and to hold it. It comes and it just dumps. And you know, you know, people who are really have sharp tongues or who are really, you know, they, whatever. It's just really, <coughs> it's released. So the assumption is, is if they do that, they'll feel better. But that is not actually what happens, because anybody who's let rip and sliced somebody to shreds usually feels quite terrible afterwards. Okay. So with people who have that kind of conditioning, what they need is encouragement to hold and to restrain and to allow the heat of that to build up and to develop greater capacity to know that energy as a somatic experience and to trust that they are going to be okay just holding it. And as it's held and as it's spread throughout the whole of the body, then it cools down sufficiently then to be able to engage in it where there's more discernment. Because when it just, and you know, it, it, it burns. And, and sometimes it can actually be catastrophic because what can happen in a, in a moment of anger like that is, is that trust can be very, very badly damaged and it can take a long time for it to uh, reform or regroup. So either mechanism, either suppression or dumping, you know, they're not healthy and one needs to find um, uh, special supports to bring both into a balance so that it's actually more uh, flowing. It's not blocked and it's being expressed in a way which is not harmful. So the suppressant people like myself thought, well, this stuff is really dangerous. So you don't ever, ever, ever under any circumstance want to say anything because it's dangerous. So what we do is we jam it into our immune systems and into our bones and into our bodies. You know, and, and we have physical illnesses that manifest the result of our, of our fear. You know? But anger is anger. It's an energy that can be known and can be understood. And when it is not used to hurt people, it can be a powerful force that's very protective. And so I needed to see the positive attributes of anger in order to allow it into conscious awareness. People who dump need to really focus on how harmful that is. Yeah. So again, what we do is very contextual, depending on what our particular you know, twists and circumstances are around it and what is actually useful for us. Does that help you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, please. For those people who do dump and have tongues, there seems to be a lot of uh, danger when focusing on the negative aspects 
uh, self-blame and uh, just the doubling up of the anger. So you have the anger and the anger at the self for being angry or expressing it in any unhealthy way. So that is a, is a, is a mild-high sandwich. So what we need to do is to start <laughs> with, the, with the... and then work down to the tofu, okay? So we start with what we can reach, which is the self-blame, and realize that's not helpful. Okay, so self-blame is not helpful. Remorse is phenomenally helpful. And to distillate self-blame into remorse is to look at it in terms of cause and effect and not to solidify, I am a bad person because I've done this. Cause and effect says that when I let rip, it causes unskillful results. There's no self in it. There's no bad person. When I do this, it causes that, and that's not helpful. Self-blame is, I'm a bad person. All right, can you see the difference? So to distillate self-blame and to separate out that into cause and effect, then transform something which is toxic into something which is very useful. Because when we see it in terms of cause and effect, it gives us the energy to not want to do that again. And to not want to do that again means that we need to develop the capacity to hold that energy so that we have the ability for it to arise, to be known, and not just to Okay? Now, that is a somatic process. It's not an intellectual one where you actually need to be able to tolerate the heat physically because the heat is saying discharge. That's what it's saying, discharge. And it doesn't care how it's discharged. It just wants to discharge. But the discernment is saying that if I just dump, I feel really bad afterwards. So the body needs to increase its capacity to tolerate the heat without discharging. And that takes practice. You know, when I was working at Amravati, I was working in the, in the workshop for a while. And I was, uh, I was the work nun. And I looked after the workshop. And they had this... <coughs> stove, a potbelly stove, one of the monks made out of cast iron. So he weld together, I don't know what he got to weld this thing together, but it was a monster. And it had a, a, a lid, I could put tree trunks in there that were four feet long, you know, and this wide. So I would dump, I would sweep the floor and I would have all kinds of trash in there, you know, and I just take the garbage can and, and tip it into the into the pot belly stove and turn the lid and I save the what do you call it turpentine in this country? I forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I clean the brushes I'd save the turpentine so it was turpentine mixed with paint and I'd douse this thing with turps and I'd torch it and it would go you know, and if I filled it up enough, the metal would get red hot, you know, and it would shake, you know, as the fire is you know, the whole thing would shake. But it would hold the heat. You know, it never broke and the fire never came out on the floor. It held the heat. And to me, that was like, that is the right metaphor. It's like, that's what we need to learn how to cultivate, is that capacity to hold the heat. And no matter how rough and how coarse and how raw and how, you know, you know, terps is not clean stuff and it stinks and it's, you know, it's a mess. But it's like, that's sometimes the stuff we're dealing with. And yet, that's what our bodies need to learn to do, is to develop the capacity of like that potbelly stove to handle the heat that it does not leak out. Yes, please. Um, my question is path-related and, and, and has to do with my navigating the level of immersion um, into practice, my own practice. 
And um, I think I, you know, now that I scan my the last 20, 30 years, I realize that I'm kind of like a spiritual surfer, or 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 a bee that lands on a flower here and there and takes a little nectar from this one and that one. And, but I've never really immersed in a path, really, you know, like um, I want to say religiously, but that would be the wrong word. But I mean, like for real, you know, and. Um, and I'm, I find myself often confused between you know Theravada, Mahayana, non-dual, because each one seems to have pieces for me, you know. And um, and then of course now you know the big thing is the big power of now, non-dual, which is like Zen light or Buddhist light, you know what I mean, like Miller light. But <laughs> but, 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 in the, but in the meditation thing, you know, well, you really don't have to go into lineage at all because they already did that all for you. All you have to do is be in the moment and just be in the moment. You don't have to go into lineage. You don't have to read Eightfold Path, Normal Truths. You don't have to do any of this stuff. So, and I'm addressing this to anyone, so I'm, you know, it's like, you know, it's like I'm, I'm a little like that. You know, and in today's meditation, I was, um, just as an addendum to this question, if it is even a question, um, I just had this feeling like, you know, um, there's no problem. I just got, the open sky kind of gave me this feeling like, you know, don't judge, let it come. You know, the sky doesn't judge, doesn't judge what shape the cloud is, whether it's dark or light or raining or whatever. And, and I kind of got, I got a glimpse, I got a glimpse of non-judgmental experience, and it seemed freeing for about two seconds. Um, but it was something, you know. It's like, wow, there is no problem, and I make the problem. So that's a very illuminating insight, yeah. And the other part of that is, is, is that some of the um, the, the ways our ignorance is is uh, got a grip is, is is that the grip is is tenacious and requires strong medicine in order that we see that there's no problem. So that's the irony. This is sometimes it takes phenomenally powerful medicine to realize and see that there's no problem. Then the question is is, is what's useful. And for each person, there's going to be a different response to that. So I can't tell you the answer to your question. All I can do is I can point you to ways that you can discern for yourself what's the right way for you to find the answer to your question. Now, the whole of the path can be summarized in the Four Noble Truths. There's suffering. There's a cause of suffering. There's a cessation to suffering. And there's a path. When there's suffering, it's important to pay attention to it. So this society is brilliant at ignoring suffering or blaming suffering. Okay? But the path is actually to do neither of those, but to look at it, investigate it, and to look at the internal cause. What is the internal cause? Right there, right exactly there, no other place than there is where the cessation of suffering will be found. Now, in terms of what kind of medicine or container or tool or tradition or lineage or reading or support or a theoretical framework supports you to do that work is going to be entirely dependent on you. I can't tell you. 
It's not so much a choice, it's a question of discernment about what it is that you actually need and what's working for you. Now, the weird thing about the way these choices go is that we tend to gravitate towards the things which support our ignorance and the things that do not support our freedom. Well, it's like the same way that people who are in have issues with dependency, end up with alcoholic partners, or have issues with... I mean, we move towards the thing that is our weak spot. Yeah? I mean, somebody made a joke, and I think there was a lot of truth to it. The people who had authority issues were Ajahn Chah people. The people who were control freaks were in the Mahasi tradition. The people who were antisocial were meditating by themselves in the cave. (laughs) We move towards the thing that we feel comfortable with, which supports our own delusions. So in order to wake up out of that, we need to see the mechanism which is driving that. And from that, make discernment about what is actually helpful. You know? So I can't answer that question in terms of, well, it's like this. Well, you obviously need to do that. You know, it doesn't work that way. What you need to do is to figure out what actually is happening. Where are the weak spots in the practice path? And what supports you to develop those without supporting ignorance? Now, obviously, if you have a teacher that you trust in interaction with a person who has wisdom and skill in these things can be really helpful because Ironically, they don't tell you all the bad things about you. Oftentimes what they do is they mirror for you your strengths that you don't see. You know? Yeah. Now, what I'd like to do... Are you okay? Do you want to stand up for a minute? I want to spend the next bit talking about the question that I heard at lunchtime, which is where I've come from and where I'm going and what I'm hoping to do. Okay? Would you like to stand up and stretch? Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.